Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, July 15th, 2022. In this week's episode, we will be discussing a former fugitive facing murder charges after an officer who helped in his escape committed suicide also additional charges piling up for a disgraced lawyer alex murdaugh this time for the alleged murder of his wife and son as well as amber heard's request for a new trial that has been strongly denied plus we'll discuss the possible charges that the parents of the alleged highland park shooter could face and compare them to the charges currently faced by the parents of alleged Oxford High School shooter. Today, we are excited to be joined by Jonna Spilbor, owner and operator of Jonna Spilbor Law, a fellow prosecutor turned criminal defense attorney and legal analyst that you can see on the Fox News channel as well as other television and media outlets. Jonna, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, before we jump in, there's a lot to discuss today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice? Oh, sure. I, uh, I kind of started like you. I, had, I did a stint as a prosecutor out in California in San Diego. That's where I began my career. But I uh, moved back to New York, which is where I'm from, it seems like many, many moons ago, and uh, started my own very busy practice just a little bit north of New York City and continued to do criminal defense, divorce, um, and personal injury. And a lot of times, Criminal defense and divorce can go hand in hand because people who are getting divorced <laughs> can get a little nutty. So it's, yeah. a, it's a very busy practice and I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, we, we get a lot of spillover from the from the divorce law in, in our practice as well. Well, we are excited to have you and, and excited to hear your insights, especially on these cases. So let's jump right in. We're talking about out of Lauderdale County, Alabama, Casey White, 38 years old, escaped from an Alabama jail with the help of corrections officer Vicki White, 56-year-old, uh, and they have no relation to each other, just share the la same last name. The pair eluded police for 11 days before they were apprehended in Indiana after a police pursuit that ended with Vicki and Casey crashing their vehicle. The pair was found with $29,000 cash along with multiple guns and different wigs to disguise their identities. Tragically, however, Vicki White died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and Casey White handed himself over to police. The coroner, in fact, even ruled that Vicki's death was a suicide. However, in a surprising legal move, the Lauderdale County DA alleges that while committing the crime of escape, Casey White caused the death of Vicki White. Under Alabama law, people can be charged with murder if they cause someone else's death while committing another crime. Really kind of fascinating case, Jonna. What, what is your initial reaction to these charges? Okay, this is really, really interesting on a number of levels. You know, when cases like this happen, we tend to, whether you're, you're a member of the court of public opinion or whether you're an attorney like us, you kind of take a side and you get an initial impression. Now, Casey White, is not a good guy, right? He was in prison for a reason. I think his charges were fairly serious. Don't quote me. It might have been capital. No, it was murder. It was murder charges, yeah. So not a great guy. Um, he obviously befriended or maybe started up a relationship with the now deceased uh, corrections officer, Vicki White, which incidentally, sidebar, in most states, it is a crime to do that. They do, they do not allow uh, any sort of fostering of an inmate having any sort of relationship with a corrections officer 
for obvious reasons, right? We want right. to avoid this. Um, and there was another notorious case here in New York, uh, Joyce Mitchell, kind of the same thing. Um, and one of those inmates ended up dead. However, despite the fact that he wasn't a good guy and despite the fact that they were not supposed to have a relationship, the sort of superseding intervening thing that happened here was that uh, Vicky killed herself. And when we think of a felony murder where we're all okay with the fact that if you're committing some sort of felony and somebody dies in the process, you can easily be charged and convicted of felony murder. But when you add that extra element, the suicide, which is novel historically in cases uh, where felony murder is charged, it changes the game. At least it does for me. And I'm not at all convinced that it's going to stick, for lack of a better word, when he is, Casey White is eventually tried for this because that's, it's just a different ball game. She killed yeah. herself. So there had yeah. to be uh, some sort of intent there on her part. So it's a very, it's a very novel and unique sad, but a uh, case. And I don't know if it's going to set any precedent for future cases. If anything were to happen like this again. Yeah. Yeah. You, you did an excellent job of kind of laying out all the issues in this just to give, give listeners kind of an understanding. We're talking about the felony murder rule, which basically right. says like what you said, that if you're committing a felony, if you're committing a armed robbery and someone dies uh, even if you didn't have the intent to commit that murder, they're going to charge you with murder under this felony murder um, concept uh, because you you can you were conducting um, you were engaged in conduct that was so likely to um, have the danger of death that they're going to hold you responsible and give you that kind of criminal intent. Uh, you know, there's famous cases where uh, you know a getaway driver can be charged. Uh, with the armed, you know, robbery of a liquor store, if the if the clerk gets shot, because it's the idea that you know going into a robbery with a gun, there's a likelihood someone could get shot. Now, what you point out here, though, is the weird thing about it is the crime that he's being accused of is murder, while the quote unquote crime that Vicky committed was actually suicide. Right. So it's he's it, it's not that he she got shot by the cops in the course of their um, escape, which you could maybe understand how, you know, an escape is dangerous and running from the police. But she took this intervening step of taking her own life. And that's what I think makes it so interesting. And I agree with you. Would do you see, even if he's convicted on this, what are the appellate issues you could see arising out of this? Oh, tremendous. And let's, can we backtrack for a second? Cause you yeah. raised something very interesting, right? So, Setting the scene, these two are escaping, right? They're, they're fugitives from the law. If the police had shot Vicky and she were a fleeing felon, that might have actually been okay legally. In other words, I don't know right. if he would have been charged because they had the right to shoot or it would have been a justified shooting. But let's say they're fleeing from the law and they run across your lawn and you're like, oh my right. God, I got two felons and you shoot her then of right. course, you know, he could be charged with felony murder and that would likely stick. This is just so incredibly strange. So uh, on an appellate level, let's fast forward if he were to get convicted because look, jury's not gonna like him. What's what's to like about this guy? He, you know, he should have right. stayed where, where he was. Um, but we have seen in the not too distant past issues, legal issues involving people who have committed suicide and those around them being charged. Um, 
Michelle Carter comes to mind. Do you remember the Michelle Carter case? No. Totally, totally different set of facts, but she would, they were two teenagers. She had a boyfriend. I think they were teenagers, maybe 19. He wanted to kill himself. He's in a, a car. Oh, in yes. A yes. And they're texting. And she yes. got charged with a manslaughter, I want to say, um, because she didn't stop him. And she was well, and she even kind of talked him into it or something yeah. and told him it, this would bring him comfort or something like that. Right. Yeah. It was some crazy and, you know, terrible tragedy. But I didn't think she was going to get convicted. She was actually just tried by a judge, not a jury. And, you know, she ended up getting convicted and I think serving two and a half years or something like that. So if we look at that as maybe a trend that as a society, we are not going to tolerate those who contribute to another person's uh, suicide, well, hmm, then well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what an appellate court's gonna do. But we don't like death, right? As, a, as right. a society, we don't like death, especially unnecessary death. But this is gonna be very, maybe he won't even stand trial. I mean, there could be a, a whole slew of pretrial motions that maybe it doesn't get there, maybe he takes a deal, which is quite, you know, that happens quite yeah. often. Very, very, it's it's fascinating from a legal perspective, even right. though this guy doesn't have one single redeemable quality. Right, right. It's almost like an, a law school exercise. I could see us, you know, talking this out in, in crim, crim 101 type of a deal. Um, yeah. it, it, and I agree with you, a jury's not going to like him. And I guess an argument could be made that, listen, this woman was living a law-abiding life. And if it wasn't for his actions, and those actions being both convincing her uh, you know, however he cajoled her or, you know, the romance or whatever it was that convinced her to take part in this, the, all of those actions eventually led to her death and that he shouldn't get to walk just because her death came at her own hands. And I could kind of wrap my head around that argument and mm -hmm. I could kind of see a jury going for it, but it's going, I, I cannot see if he's convicted at trial, this doesn't end up with a fascinating, uh, a court of appeal opinion on this thing. Yeah, that really, and maybe prosecutors will want to take it to the mat for that reason, because if you think yeah. about it, they've got nothing to lose. He was already doing life or whatever he was going to do in prison. So he's going yeah. back and they really have nothing to lose by testing this legal theory. And, and perhaps for that re reason, they'll be encouraged to do that. That's, that's a great yeah. point. You might be absolutely right. They're playing with house money. They might as well see how this plays out anyways. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Turning now to Columbia, South Carolina, Alex Murdoff, 54 years old, stands indicted on two counts of murder for the deaths of his wife, Maggie Murdoff, 52, and his son, Paul Murdoff, 22. Maggie was shot with a rifle while Paul was killed with a shotgun on the family's hunting estate on June 7th, 2021. It's interesting to me, first off, the two different weapons were used in this killing. We'll get back to that later. But Alex uh, called 911. He claims he found their bodies after he returned to the estate from visiting his mother and ailing father. Murdoff, formerly a respected lawyer from a notable family in which Alex's father and two previous generations of Murdoff men served as Hampton County's elected prosecutors for a consecutive 87 years. These are the latest in a series of charges that face Alex Murdoff, including embezzlement, conspiracy, money laundering related to distributing oxycodone, additional murder charges, and allegedly fraudulently staging his own death to collect a $10 million life insurance policy. A lot going on with Alex Murdoff. Um, yeah. I know I'm asking you to purely speculate here, Jonna, but why do you think it took a year 
long delay before bringing these charges. Okay. I actually think this is a fairly, there's a fairly straightforward reason why. And if we take Alex Murdoch's entire life, like what you just said, he comes from a legal dynasty. He was well known in the community. Obviously something, this guy snapped at some point he snapped and it didn't, the snap wasn't um, the the murder, the alleged murder of his wife and son. The snap kind of happened before because he allegedly was embezzling money and doing a whole lot of uh, financially fraudulent things with his clients and his law firm. So something was going on mentally. Drugs Um, and everything else, yeah. Drugs and all, you know, and he was just unraveling uh, emotionally. He could be suffering from some sort of mental illness. So my guess is if I were representing him, I would have wanted him to get more than one evaluation to find out what caused him to snap. I would want him to get some treatment. I would say to the prosecutor, look, forget the any sort of speedy trial issues. I'll waive them. Let's just see where he's at in his mind before you charge him. Let's see if we can work out a deal before you charge him. Because this is just like I said, maybe not insanity, not legal insanity, but something close. And I would want time to explore all of that before you charge my client. So they probably gave his defense attorney the deference. You waive time, you know, as we say here, so that you're not under the gun to file your charges fast. And that's probably why they did it the way they did. And maybe in his medical records, there might be something that the defense camp is going to hang their hats on. I don't know, but like you said, I'm speculating. I don't exactly know, but I would have yeah. done it. I would have played it that way. I yeah, have interesting. So, yeah. so you you think that maybe the defense knew this was coming for some time, and said, "Listen, you've already got him locked up on all of these other things. We'll waive time and give you the opportunity, but give us the opportunity to do a little legwork on our own for his defense." That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that initially. My thought was. You know, sometimes when you see a delay, it's they're waiting on, you know, forensic results or DNA or something like that, that, you know, they're waiting to kind of dot all the I's and cross all the T's as it were. But it makes no sense here. We're talking about a year later. It, it, it seems like all the forensics would have been put together. Um, it, it is strange and something I, I hope that we get to the, you, as this case continues to develop, I hope we find out more about that. Another thing I had a, a question about is that you know, again, we don't have a lot of details surrounding uh, what the police know about these murders, but there seem it seems to be glaringly um, absent from any kind of motive, right? Like, why why kill your wife and kid, whatever you're involved in? And I know that motive is not something that's required for the prosecution to be proved, but do you think they need to nail that down in a case like this when you're talking about? inner family murder why would a man kill his wife and child is that a question that prosecutors need to answer you know the jury's going to want to know the why juries always want to know the why and when you look at the trajectory of his downfall right the financial crimes and then he uh, well we're assuming we're taking the leap that he is responsible for the murders and then he tried to stage his own death and we know that there was a financial motive kind of swirling around so did he kill, did he need to kill his wife for money, for an insurance policy and his kid has sort of gotten the way? But then how do you explain the two separate weapons? Did he hire somebody to help him? I mean, I think it's not going to be a big leap 
for a jury to determine that he is somehow responsible for the death of his wife and son. We don't know if he was solely motivated by money because he right. needed it and he maybe had planned to murder his wife, but his son was kind of, you know, collateral damage or, and wasn't his son also having legal trouble? Didn't yeah. his son cause his the death son, of on his boat? Right. His son uh, was facing charges for being drunk while driving a boat that ended up crashing into a bridge and killing one of the passengers in the boat. So he was, he was, it, when he died, he was currently uh, dealing with those charges. And that family has since gone on to try to sue Alex again, uh, saying that, you know, he's responsible because he, he knew his son was drunk and underage that day. Yeah. Another case of, you know, how much is the parent responsible for the acts right. of a child? But, but maybe, you know, look, if Alex Murdoch was, unraveling and he was having all these financial troubles and then he thinks that his money is going to be at stake when those families sue his son paul uh you know maybe that just contributed to it and he snapped although for somebody who may have snapped and again these are just legal theories at the moment um seems like he planned it pretty well <laughs> you know yeah. usually you think of snapping where it's like heat of the moment uh you know you catch your spouse in bed with somebody else and all my then you kill someone this seemed very, very premeditated. Um, so it's it really is going to be interesting to learn yeah. what the defense is going to be here. Yeah, it's a fascinating and fascinating case. And to add even one more wrinkle, we already kind of touched on this, but this whole thing kind of broke because he had attempted to stage his own murder, meaning he he wanted to die. He had hired someone to shoot him, but he wanted it to be done in such a way that his other son could receive his life insurance. So ag again, it's like this guy's all over the map because he, if he's responsible for the death of his wife and one son, why is he then trying to kill himself and give the money to the other son? I think you make the point though, it, it might just be that there really isn't a motive here for anything because the guy is just so heavily unraveling, as you put it, the rails of so come completely off in his life that there's no rhyme or reason to anything he's doing. That that just might be what we end up with. No, exactly. Except, you know, he is just mentally um, ill and whatever brought that about. And I will say not to not to toot my own horn, but when that story first broke that he that somebody on the side of the road and somebody tried to kill him, I said, uh, -uh that is so yeah. that's bull. It's completely bull. And that and that quickly came to light that it was yeah. uh, not the case. So I yeah. his defense attorneys have a a big job ahead of them because he's done some terrible things right to his clients, yeah. to his law firm, to his family. And but I always maybe it's me. But when somebody is suffering emotionally, you you have a little sympathy, right? You know, yeah. you got to kind of get to the, the bottom of that. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know why I always bring this case up, but years ago, years and years ago, uh, Andrea Yates killed oh, yeah. her five kids, killed them, boom, like drowned them in the bathtub, not guilty by reason of insanity. So, yeah. you know, and especially, you know, is there some insanity going on here that may not be legally fleshed out, but he's suffering, I guess we'll yeah. have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Could could be a drug fueled insanity, too. Who knows? I mean, if th these opiates are just so damaging to a person's psyche, who who knows what this could have caused? Horrible. 
horrible. Turning now to the, the case that we can never escape, talking about Amber Heard's request for a new trial has been denied by the judge, and this is out of Fairfax County, Virginia. We will all watch the highly publicized defamation suit. Depp sued Heard in March of 2019 for a 2018 Washington Post op-ed piece that Heard wrote about domestic violence. In June of this year, Heard was found liable for three defamation claims, and the jury ordered her to pay $10 million uh, and change in damages to Depp. Uh, it, it, fair to say, Depp was also found liable for one defamation claim in Heard's countersuit, and he was ordered to pay $2 million in compensatory damages. Last week, Heard's team filed a motion alleging that one of the jurors, and this was really interesting to me, I've never seen something like this, that was chosen for the trial was not the same person who received the jury summons. The person on the summons shares the same last name and first name and addresses the juror who served, though the summons listed the birth year as 1945, while the birth year of the juror that served was 1970. Okay, so what, what happened here, obviously, is a summons gets sent to the house. It's got the, the, the name and address of two of the individuals that live there, and the son, I'm guessing, assumes that the summons is for him, and goes and goes to court and answers the ju jury summons. And and by the way, I don't I don't think there's any evidence that anybody knew receiving these summonses what the case was for. That at least that's how it works here. You have no idea what you're going in for. Right. First of all, let, let me ask you, John, what what do you think about this filing? Like the the argument behind it? Is it a good argument? Did the judge's ruling surprise you at all? What were your thoughts? Um, okay, so let's start here. There are often times after a trial where a the loser is going to want to file what we call post-trial motions for a variety of reasons. Now, you don't have to do it. You can opt to do it. If your client wants you to do it and they want to spend the money to do it, great. This case, I think a lot of people are trying to save face. Number one, Amber Heard. Yeah. Why does she want to save face? Because... Let's 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 be real. Like her career for the near future is over. Like who is going to hire her? Uh, this was this was an epic trial. Her attorneys have a whole lot of egg on their face, and uh, they're they're trying to maybe get get a couple of foothold back up in in the grace of the legal profession. A PR move. Uh, basically, a PR move. Judge yeah. isn't having any of it because it's not very meritorious. On a side note, imagine imagine getting a jury summons and like saying to your wife or your husband or your kid, like, you know what, I'm busy. You go. Like, I think that's <laughs> kind of funny. But but you gotta remember, jurors don't just show up and sit down and then all of a sudden they're jurors. You go through right. a voir dire process. You painstakingly talk to these people. You compare them to the notes and the um, biological information you have. The judge gets to do initial questioning. So that wasn't a very meritorious claim. But can I tell you something? Can I tell, if, if Amber Heard is listening, she, <laughs> this is what she needs to do. Cause she, at this point, look at her life, right? She's got this gigantic judgment that she's probably never gonna pay or that Johnny Depp could chase her around for a really long time. She's not liked in the court of public opinion. She gave us glorious material for a variety of memes that just don't seem to really stop. They've slowed down a little. But what does she want? She wants to either A, get her life back, and B, not have a $10 million debt uh, over her head for the rest of her life. This is what yeah. she needs to do. She needs to call Johnny Depp up and say, Johnny, I am sorry, like privately. 
I am sorry. I don't know. I made a lot of bad decisions. I lost my mind. I put us through this. I didn't mean to. Oh, my God, help me. I've got a kid now, blah, 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 et cetera. And they can agree behind the curtain sure. that Johnny's never going to go after this money. They can agree to that. And so she doesn't have to worry about getting chased around for millions and millions. And they can do it quietly. And that's probably what she should do because yeah. um, she can't come out publicly and say, my God, I really screwed up. I lied to everybody. I lied to the court. I lied to Johnny. I lied to the, she'll go to jail. Right. She needs to just tamp it down, try to establish a relationship with Johnny Depp that gets him off her back. She, he probably doesn't want the money. He probably isn't planning on going after the money, but she needs to do yeah. that. And she needs to go away. And maybe in five years, she might get a career back. I don't know. But yeah. but these motions were like a Hail Mary. They weren't going to work. The attorneys are doing what attorneys do. Sometimes their client says, do it, we do it. But it's not very meritorious. No, I, I, I agree with you. If she's, if she's trying to rebuild her career, constantly reminding us by these new filings of the trial, and like you said, the memes all start up again, it, it's not doing her any favors. Um, I was also shocked too by her behavior after she's doubled down. I mean, it's not like she's saying, you know, the, the jury has spoken. I'm going to respect their decision, blah, blah. She is trying to take up this torch of, of domestic violence again. And it's just, I think, just making things worse for her. Um, just to get back to one other little wrinkle to do with this issue with the juror, the juror. Um, an interesting point is that the summons did not have a birth date on it so it doesn't appear as though there's any evidence that the juror was trying to be fraudulent or trying to get onto this it may have just been a mistake that they they didn't realize who it was for and the the juror just assumed it was for him and not his father i'm assuming um do you think that played a role in the judge's mind like if there was evidence of a juror manipulating the system in some sort of way to get on this jury, don't you think that would have carried more weight for, for her side of the argument? That probably would have been a game changer. I think the yeah. intent of the, of the mistaken juror, if it, were, if it were intentional, would have played a bigger part. But as you mentioned, we, it, the, you don't know. You don't know what you're saying. Yeah. You could be showing up for you know a jaywalking case for all you know. Like You don't know that until you're, you're seated, number one. And number two... I don't know if there's any sort of harmless error analysis because of what we talked about a minute ago. You don't just show up, sit there, and you're a juror, right? There is a, a voir dire process that yeah. goes on. So however you got there, assuming that you were a resident of that county, um, you know, that's really the all you need to do to qualify right. to get to the courthouse. And then once you're in the courthouse, you have to get questioned. Um, but also, again, I, sometimes I compare apples to oranges, but... Very recently, do you remember the juror, juror issue in a, another criminal case, the Ghislaine Maxwell case? They yes. had the juror afterwards that was uh, said he had been sexually abused and intentionally apparently hid that. They had a whole motion hearing on that, and the judge was like, no, nope, we're good. That decision I completely disagreed with. I yeah. think she should have been entitled to a mistrial, absolutely. That's much stronger. It's a much stronger case than what the juror issue is here in the depth situation. Yeah. And, and you nailed it. I think there is a huge difference and it comes down to what was the intent of the juror. And in this case, it appears as though there's no evidence that the juror was trying to be fraudulent or play any kind of games. Whereas in the Ghislaine Maxwell, there's absolute evidence that not only were they trying to get onto this this jury by hiding 
information, but then they use that very information to try to convince other jurors. I was, I was, I agree with you. I was disappointed with the judge's ruling in that case. Not that I think Ghislaine needs to walk, but it, it should be done the right way and not through juror misconduct. Let's jump into a subject that we've kind of alluded to a couple of times now, but we're talking about the liability of parents for the criminal actions of their children. And it, it, over the July 4th weekend, we all know about the the horrible um, shooting that took place in Highland Park, Illinois. The prosecutor says that he expects more charges to be filed. And so everybody started to kind of speculate as to what is meant by that. We're, we're talking about Robert Cremo III, uh, 21 years old, faces seven counts of first-degree murder for the July 4th Highland Park shooting that left seven dead and dozens injured after Cremo allegedly fired over 70 rounds into the parade goers. According to prosecutors, Cremo planned the attack for weeks. The gun used in the shooting was legally purchased by Cremo, despite war multiple warning signs, including incidents in which Cremo threatened family members with the night. Another in incident uh, where officers responded after Cremo threatened to kill himself. And it should be noted that in Illinois, they do have, uh, you know, so-called red flag laws in effect. In spite of all of this, Cremo was able to obtain an Illinois firearm owner's ID after being sponsored by his father. And that's kind of the point we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Jonah, I wanted to talk about the parents' liability in that case, but I want to compare it to another case that we have been following. And this is about Jennifer and James Crumbly. They have been charged with involuntary manslaughter after their son allegedly killed four in the Oxford High School shooting in Michigan. Both Crumbly parents face four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Judge Matthews ruled that the Crumley parents could stand trial, adding that the parents' gross negligence allowed their son to access the murder weapon and allowed him to remain in school with that murder weapon, adding that their negligence was a substantial factor. Prosecutors alleged that there were multiple warning signs in that case and that the parents denied him mental health treatment even after he had reportedly asked for help. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. And, and I... I know that over all of this is the idea of gun control and what can be done to, to, to stop these things. But putting that aside for a moment and just kind of talking strictly about the criminal law perspective here, what kind of precedent do you think we're setting in charging parents for actions that in retrospect, we we expect them to have taken or steps like in the, the shooting in Highland Park, steps that they took that we would expect them not to take given the mental instability of their children? So um, I do think that we are kind of on the cusp of a trend where we are trying to assign criminal liability to parents for a variety of reasons, crimes that their kids commit that are big and or small. If we're going to compare these two cases, though, the Crumbly case and the uh, Cremo case, there's one particular fact that to me is a game changer. And that is in the Crumbly case, we're talking about a teenager, right? Who committed these crimes. Your teenager is the kid who lives in your house. You tucked him in for your entire life. You sit down, you have dinner together. You check their homework. You check their social media content. You check their phones. You check their closets. That's your job as a parent. Yeah. But in the other case, we're talking about an adult. Now, maybe he did live with the parents. And even when the father uh, sponsored his gun permit and hold that aside because I want to talk about that in more in a second. He still did that when um, Robert was 19, not uh, technically a legal adult, not a child. 
So we have to be very careful. While we might be able to get behind legally the crumbly situation and assigning criminal liability to a parent in that case, just like I would have had no problem holding the parents of the Columbine kids uh, liable. When you have an adult living in your house who makes a horrible decision, who may be mentally ill, may be a nut job or what have you, it might be a, a, a bridge too far, legally yeah. speaking. So I think we have to be careful of those distinguishing facts when we compare and contrast those two cases. Now, that said, if we can kind of maybe go off on a tangent for a second, imagine, if you will, like I, I, I'm a permit, I have a gun permit. And in New York, and I represent people with gun permits who get their gun permits taken all the time. You need four people to vouch for you on your application. And those people have to be in your county and they can't be members of your household. They are not allowed to be members of your household. And that makes sense to me, right? You need four people who are going to swear that you're not crazy and, and that you are okay to have a gun. So the laws obviously are a little bit different in um, Illinois. That said, imagine if you could assign criminal liability. If you apply, you come to New York, you apply. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Joshua's a great guy. Sure. No problem. I've never had a problem with him. Sure. I'll sign here. Right. If I could be responsible because you decide to kill somebody. We might as well rip up the Second Amendment because nobody's going to vouch for another person to get a gun permit after that. So we've got to be careful of that slippery slope. In case you can't tell, I am a Second Amendment a Second Amendment advocate. So we can't ignore that when yeah. we discuss these cases where we're trying to assign criminal liability to someone who did not pull the trigger. So that's very important to me. Yeah. That's a really, really, you make really two really good points I hadn't really thought about. That one, there is a huge difference when we're talking about minors and in, in the care. We, we put a lot of responsibility on parents because that person is a minor and you you are they are seen as not being responsible for themselves to a large extent. Uh, and comparing that to a person who's a full-fledged adult. And I, as you, the other point that you make as you were speaking, I thought about that exact scenario. What if this was a not as somebody who lived in his home, not a relative, somebody who just signed off. And you're right. What kind of a situation are we getting into where let's say that person goes out and commits a shooting and you had been one of the four that signed off for him. Are you now going to be expected to give some sort of interview to law enforcement as to why you signed off on that? And how well did you know this person? Did you know about the fact that they had attempted suicide several years before that? And did you know that they were on uh, mental health uh, medication and things like that? You, you could see the kind of hornet's nest this would open up. Turning this again on its tail, in this case, though, in, in Illinois, the father was well aware um, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm assuming, but if he's living in that household, then he's aware of the the incident with the knives. He's aware of the incident where he, he the police responded because he was suicidal. In spite of all of that, he still uh, sponsored him, and that I think might be, if I'm the prosecutor, an element that I would push on is like, listen, the reason we want people to sign off on these sponsorships for gun permits is to act as a gatekeeper. Do you understand the mental health of this person in a way that the law enforcement or others might not let us know if he's safe or not? And that is there a responsibility in signing that? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of talking free, free flow here, but what are your thoughts on that? Like at some point, isn't there a responsibility? I imagine that when you're signing off on these things, you're, you're attesting to the fact that this person is not a threat, right? I, uh, well, and that's the idea. 
right? But look at the trust factor there. I mean, I the points you're making are excellent. I, I could talk about this with you for hours and hours because here's what is sticking in my craw. Uh, first of all, the father, when the father vouched, the, uh, the defendant here was 19. How many years later? So two years later, he commits these horrible crimes. Okay, so there's this huge gap of time. Right. Second, just like in New York, that is one of the reasons why you can't have a family member or a household member sign off on your gun permit application because, you know, it reminds me of there was an old show when I was a kid called Welcome Back, Cotter. And every time uh, Epstein did something wrong, he'd send a note to school and it was signed by Epstein's mother. Right. If your mother or father <laughs> can't say something good about you, nobody can. So it, it, it's kind of a dumb rule that Illinois has there. But uh, Illinois has. But let's not forget one other thing. When you fill out this application, I'm sure when uh, Crimo filled out this application, it goes to the, here, it goes to the Sheriff's Department there, probably goes to the Sheriff's Department or another police agency. They are responsible for vetting you. Like they now yeah. have a job to do. You don't just rubber stamp those things. You have to do a whole criminal background check. You've got to check those references. You've got to do your due diligence before you give somebody license to kill. Yeah. So let's not ignore the police responsibility yeah. here. Yeah. And uh, so that's another another uh, differenting factor that we've got to um, analyze. Yeah, no, you 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 bring up a point that I was going to ask you about. In fact, let's say they do end up charging the father in that case in Illinois. Why can't the same argument be extended to the police if they have responded of two times that we know of where he exhibited violence, you know, either either towards himself or towards family members, why aren't the, at what point did the police have a responsibility or the state or the city or whoever you're saying is supposed to be in charge of vetting? And like I said, they have these red flag laws in Illinois. Why aren't these being enforced? And if you're going to extend liability to the father, why doesn't it extend also to law enforcement and to the state? I don't know the answer. I don't know if the I don't know if it should extend. I don't know if it shouldn't. There was a lot that broke down here, but it, it's raising some really interesting questions about uh, liability and and how far should it go. If if we could go back to the crumbly uh, situation it, just briefly, because I wanted you to help explain this to 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 listeners, the they're being charged with involuntary manslaughter, right? So the 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 idea is. The intent is less, right? They're not. They're, there's no premeditation. There's no intent to kill. But the judge highlighted this uh, this concept of gross negligence. Could you kind of walk listeners through that to to understand why they're being charged with the, the crime that they're being charged with? Okay, so when it comes to when people are killed, when when a homicide is committed, right? Somebody's killed by another person. There are levels of intent that are required when you're making the charging decision. So obviously, while Crumbly, the child, can be charged with murdering people because he had the, the intent to go and kill, when you don't have a specific intent to kill, but you act in such a way that is so reckless um, that it just exhibits a complete disregard for human life. Uh, a, a more common example is when you get behind a wheel drunk and you, you know, yeah. you mow down a couple people in a crosswalk. Um, typically that's, you're going to be charged with a negligent homicide or an involuntary manslaughter. You didn't get in the car and say, I'm going to kill this person. you got yeah. in the car in such an irresponsible way that you ended up causing the death of another. So there, 
taking that legal construct and assigning it to the parents in the Crumbly case to say, well, wait a minute, you were so reckless in that you uh, didn't keep deadly weapons away from your son who had exhibited um, bizarre behavior, behavior that you should have seen as the people who tuck him in at night uh, as dangerous, potentially dangerous. And because you basically, it would be the same as if your kid comes home drunk and you hand him the keys of the car and say, go get me a quart of milk from the store. Legally speaking, the responsibility is the same. The facts are different. The responsibility is the same. And that's why the parents are being charged, not with murder, not like they uh, were an accessory in that regard, but with the reckless conduct resulting in the unintentional death on their behalf of the people who were killed by their son. Yeah, no, excellent job of laying that out. And it, it, it really, the analogy you give really helps people to understand how yeah. they're placing that intent and mindset on on these parents who were nowhere near where the shooting took place. Yeah. I think that was really it. I think that was the turning point in this case too, is it wasn't so much that the parents should have done a better job of addressing his mental health. They should have, but it wasn't that. It wasn't mm-hmm. the fact that they kept him in school, though he was exhibiting these kind of, uh, you know, unhealthy and violent attitudes. It was the buying the gun, right? It was the, you, in spite of all of that, maybe there were other steps you could have taken at parents, but now you just, like you said, handed the keys to a drunk person. So right. you handed this deadly weapon to a person who is exhibiting these types of traits um, and that's where where we're holding you responsible. I'll give you the the last word on this. Where do you, do you think this is a precedent that needs to be set, or do you see a ramifications that are unintended that could be disastrous for how parents treat their own children after this? Oh, you know that's such that's such a great question because we are we are having this discussion on the heels of yet another school yeah. shooting, and every time a child is killed by a gun in school, my heart, and I don't have any kids, but I cry real tears, it's heartbreaking, and and we want it to be avoided. And whenever a a child is killed by another child um, in a way that was avoidable, you can't help but look at the parents. And if we can't get parental attention simply by saying, you you know, please take care of your kids and make sure that they grow up to be law-abiding citizens and productive members of society, if we can't get their attention that way, then charging parents with the crimes of their children may actually send a message that will resonate as we move forward into the future. Because I can tell you this, I mean, the answer isn't take away all guns. That's not the answer. Um, we're mm. focusing on the issue of parental responsibility for the children you spawned. You know them better than anyone else. You know them better than their teachers. You know them better than their friends. You know them better than anyone else. And there is a responsibility. Parenthood is a great responsibility. It can't be shirked. Um, and so, yeah, this is this is something that I think parents should want to perk up. They yeah. should want to perk up and do an analysis. Do an ana- check on your kids. I mean, you don't. Yeah. No parent wants their child to go to prison at age seventeen for the rest of their lives. What parents? What parent wants that? So it's a wake up call. It's a societal wake up call. And, you know, we, and people like us, to the extent that we can help, um, then I think we also have a responsibility to help the people who need to help their kids. So that's yeah. my, my word on that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's it's 
we can't keep having these tragedies, but we can't also solve them with just these kind of monolithic approaches that there's so many nuanced things that need to be addressed. And one of them is that responsibility and, and the, the health of, of, of children or of parents with their children, right? That there has to be some sort of responsibility there to check in on them and make sure that they're healthy and not going to be the type of person to go out and do something horrible like this. Again, like I said, I don't have children, but um, the phrase that I heard most, most often growing up in my household with my, when I did something that was even remotely wrong, and of course they were minor offenses, my father would say, you're grounded till the leaves come on the trees. And that would be like sometime in November. And he kept his word. I spent a lot of time grounded till the leaves came on the trees. <laughs> whatever it took. So it, it's not an easy job being a parent. I know only because I was a kid of very strict parents, but um, thank you very much for having, this was a great oh. discussion. Like, and like you said, I I could talk to you about this for hours, um, mm-hmm. but thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, that is easy. You can always visit my website. That's johnnaspilborlaw.com. Um, you can find me all over social media. My favorite is Facebook. I'm there at Jonas Billboard and Jonas Billboard Law. I'm also all over Instagram. I like to do some silly things too, because look, we have very serious jobs and every once in a while you have to let your hair down a little bit. So yes, I'm all over social media. You can sometimes see me on Fox and, and Long Crime and stations like this. So this is always a fun opportunity and I really appreciate having this intellectual conversation with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily sidebar. Sidebar.